You're listening to episode five of Mental the Podcast. I'm Sarah Norton. I'm sitting in a Thai restaurant on the corner of St. Peter and Exchange in downtown St. Paul. Across from me is St. Joseph's Hospital, where I delivered my boy. The air is heavy with memories. It was almost exactly one year ago that I labored for 12 hours, gave birth to Ren, and he was thrown on top of me. My husband Andy said, hi, Rennie. And our little boy craned his neck back. He opened his eyes and took a first look at his dad. The nurses took such good care of me and it was so warm and so cozy in the room. Andy pulled out a little board game he'd purchased for the occasion and we played it on the rolling bedside table. It was negative 20 outside, but still Andy walked down to this Thai restaurant and brought back for me a steaming, fragrant duck curry. It was spicy, it was sticky, it was sweet, but it didn't matter how sweet all of this was or how well Andy and all the nurses and friends and family took care of me. I still got postpartum depression, but that's okay because I'm here a year later. I did have postpartum depression, but nothing will take away how sweet it was to meet my little boy and how sweet it is now to see him with his own little plate of duck curry at Ruamit Thai. It wasn't long into interviewing moms for Mental the Podcast that I realized I needed to speak to an expert about postpartum depression. Luckily, I live in the Twin Cities, and there's just a stock of marriage and family therapists and other reliable psychological experts living in the area. I asked around, got some referrals, and started reaching out by email and by phone and scheduling interviews with these busy, busy, busy people. I had to be tenacious to get some face time with them. But it helped that I was feeling like I could accomplish anything, and they started getting back to me and setting up times. At the same time, when anyone wrote about postpartum in the news, I would get several notes from friends and from moms I'd talked to saying, have you checked out this article? This made me think of you. Or even, did you write this? One of those articles happened to be about motherhood and mental illness by a woman named Jenny Ubing. You might recognize that name. Jenny is published at Catholic News Agency, and she's the author of the web space, Mama Needs Coffee. After I read the article, one of my friends was like, 
You should get her on your podcast. I thought to myself, what am I afraid of? Nothing. I'll ask her. So I did. She said yes. After we dispensed with the pleasantries and I had learned that, despite her brand, she only drinks one coffee a day, and in fact like two LaCroix. I asked her about how she was feeling after having each of her four children. My first was shocking in terms of just like how hard the postpartum period was. I think I had, I'm very choleric, like my temperament is like super, super like I'm the boss, I'm in control, I know how I'm going to get things done and I'm going to get them done this way. And So I took like all the birthing classes, made my husband come to like four months of Bradley classes. We had a doula, mm-hmm. we had... I watched, you know, like all the weird videos on YouTube and read all the books about, you know, childbirth from within. Um, And I'm not sorry. Like, I I feel like all of that information serves me well to an extent, but that birth just went so differently from how it Mm -hmm. had been, you know, planned out in my mind. And I guess I really struggled with the, like, chasm between my expectations for what that birth should have looked like and what it actually looked like. Mm -hmm. And... I just think from there, the, probably the six weeks after he was born, it was just like one blow after another. Like, I ended up having to get an epidural like 19 hours into labor. My doctor ended mm-hmm. up having to cut an episiotomy after four and a half hours of pushing. Like, he didn't latch well, and we did breastfeed, but there was lots of bleeding and lots of pain and lots of trips to the lactation consultants and just everything was harder than I thought it was going to be, and everything hurt more than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. So um, just that alone, I think, set me up for kind of a difficult postpartum period. But mm-hmm. I also had, like, a huge drop-off just in progesterone, which I had been taking at the beginning of his pregnancy because um, mm-hmm. I had some bleeding, so my doctor wanted to supplement with that. So once we figured out what was going on, I think it was about three and a half weeks after he was born, I started having progesterone injections, and that really helped start to turn things around um, from, like, in terms of my mood. Um, yeah. But it was it was definitely, I mean, it was, like, a good six months before I could even, like, think about his birth without, like, feeling panicky and, like, wanting mm. to cry. It was just scary, and um, it was a real crisis of, like, unmet expectations versus like Mm -hmm. just like the slamming in your face of reality Um, so yeah I just I guess going into my next baby's birth I was just way way more open to like okay this is going to be what it's going to be you don't actually control birth like it controls you (laughs) to a certain extent Mm -hmm. so um, but again even though I had like you know, I kind of had a better idea of how things were going to go. I still had yeah. pretty severe postpartum depression after my second. So, um, yeah, it's just every kid is different, and each one of their birth experiences has been really different. I really related to Jenny's experience of birth not going the way I imagined. Coming into Rennie's delivery, I very much wanted a water birth to work for me. But the moment I got in that tub and started having contractions, the edge that was supposed to be taken off actually increased. And I was filled with just so much disappointment that the option I'd chosen wasn't going to work out. 
but I was able to move forward and go with the flow, and I think that greatly decreased my dissatisfaction with his birth. So I really didn't have to process this as trauma in an already difficult postpartum period. I asked Jenny next, what were some of the main symptoms for you? Yeah, that's a great question for me. And as I talk about it and write about it, I'm finding this is really common. But the biggest symptom was like rage, which sounds Mm. crazy and not like depression, but it was like, Mm. you've heard the expression like depression is anger turned inward. Well, postpartum depression to me feels like anger turned outward. Like Mm. I'm like a tight wire and anything will set me off. And Mm. it was really like really compounded by sleeplessness, which of course, Mm. if you have a newborn, you're going to not be sleeping great. Um, but just these like pops of rage, especially once I had a few kids at home, like the anger would be directed towards them, which was scary for mm-hmm. me because they're little, you know, and yeah. I went from like, these are my babies to like, you're the enemy and you're getting between the mm-hmm. baby sleeping and me like, mm-hmm. so that was always, a, that is always a big tell for me. Um, and just a real like physical manifestation of anxiety, like shortness of breath. Mm-hmm my heart racing, feeling like a flush of cold sweat, um, Mm. imagining really crazy things happening to the baby or my other kids. I have this vivid memory after my daughter was born of Mm. listening to my sister-in-law play with my two boys in the backyard, and they were running around playing tag and yelling and throwing snowballs. And I was, like, convinced that somebody was getting mortally wounded. They were, like, screaming in happiness. Mm. And I, like, sat straight up in bed and was like, what is happening out there? And screamed for my husband to come in. And it was, like, such Mm. a real feeling of, like, something terrible is happening because the noise of them screaming, like, triggered that intense fear. And so that, in a nutshell, like, that moment is, like, what postpartum feels like to me. I asked Jenny then, did you delay treatment or how did treatment go for you? Once I figured out what it was, I was like, give me anything. So we did progesterone (laughs) injections. We did, I switched to like a different SSRI and did a little bit of like cognitive behavioral therapy. I can't remember after which birth that was, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was pretty much open to like whatever. And we always also, this is, probably a big reason why we are so committed to having like regular child care but we figured out that mm-hmm. when I have help during the week that translates mm-hmm. to like just a lot more peace and a real mm-hmm. re- relief from anxiety so we're really conscientious to schedule like blocks of like four hours of babysitting mm-hmm. help with the other kids or even for me to leave the baby um, and I really consider that like almost as effective a form of treatment as the other things that I do that are more like medicinal um yeah I guess one thing I would note is that that rage piece was really manifest most dramatically after my third birth and Mm -hmm. it was so it was confusing I remember being like I'm just so angry maybe I wasn't cut out for having this many kids and not Mm -hmm. realizing that it was just the depression manifesting in a different way So I think that because of that, that postpartum period was particularly difficult, and I don't think I recognized until we were a few months out that that's what was happening. Um, I guess 
we just both thought maybe I was becoming a really angry person. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It sounds crazy now, but it was like, yeah. I think I had a more traditional um, pr- presentation of symptoms the first few times. So yeah, that kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah, totally. I've had some uh, moms I've talked to that have the same, like, kind of low rage, and then anything mm-hmm. could send them out of control. That's, yeah. I mean, that's how I was with my second. It was like I was just always angry, and then, <laughs> like, yeah. flip of a switch, I'd just be even more, <laughs> more yeah, angry. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Yeah. Um, wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, are you on a... I mean, you can tell me if you want. Are you on any uh, sort of like antidepressant, anti-anxiety medi- medication? I I am. I just finished mm-hmm. about a year of nothing. I was just doing a lot of work with a naturopath and mm-hmm. really trying to get to the root of some stuff. We did like some genetic mm-hmm. exploration. I started doing some targeted nutritional supplementation based on mm-hmm. like, you know, genetics. And it got me like to 70%. But when we got pregnant with this baby, I just you know through prayer and a lot of conversation with my husband and with my doctor we Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be closer to 100 percent so I asked to be put back on something so I'm doing just um 50 milligrams of Zoloft which is what my doctor prefers for his pregnant patients just because it has a pretty good and proven track record for pregnancy yeah um totally and it's been working so good I'm just like why didn't I do this you know five (laughs) months ago but um you know I told Jenny that I was on Zoloft, too, and she said her mom friends jokingly refer to it as vitamin Z. I don't know if that's hilarious or troubling, but it's crazy how Zoloft is such a help for so many moms. Again, we're not actually sponsored by them. I thought it was cool that she paired that with counseling and naturopathy. One of the questions I had for Jenny was about a topic raised in her article, which was actually the topic of how mental health relates to natural family planning or pregnancy avoidance. I think this is an area where Jenny is really pushing back against, on the one hand, a culture that often values a mother's mental health but may not value openness to life, and on the other hand, Others who don't see a mother's mental health as a legitimate reason to avoid pregnancy. So I asked Jenny if she could speak a little more about this. Yeah, part of why I wanted to bring that into the piece that I wrote um, is just because I think for some people, especially if they haven't experienced mental illness personally or don't have, you know, like a close loved one or friend who suffered from it, it can be difficult to communicate like the scale to which it impacts a person's life. Like, it is a major life-disrupting diagnosis slash, like, situation to have to deal with. Um, And I wanted women who, you know, are trying to, you know, like, plan these beautiful families and really um, be open to life, be open to the gift of motherhood. I wanted to give them permission to also acknowledge, like, that there are some times when it's better to not be pregnant, and that doesn't mean that pregnancy is a disease like so much of our culture would, you know, bill it as. But it, but it, I think part of being a good mom is recognizing that um, mom needs to be healthy, like body, mind, and soul, in order to be the best mom. So sometimes that means, you know, you take a little break. Like if you had 
a cancer diagnosis or like a new autoimmune disease, I don't think anyone would bat an eye if you said like, well, we're going to take a few months, a year, however long, um, and just kind of try to get the house in order before we grow our family. But for some reason, some people find it a difficult leap to make when somebody, you know, for reasons of mental illness, um, needs a little space. So mm-hmm. I just think that's an important missing piece of the conversation. And just to affirm women who are suffering, mm-hmm. like, you're not a bad mom. You're not a bad Christian. You're not a bad person for saying, I need a little break right now. Like, that's just taking good care of your body. I asked her, do you think a lot of moms today are struggling with this, with mental health and related issues? You know, I or... really do. I really yeah. feel like it's this kind of silent epidemic, and mm-hmm. I want I want there to be more space for us to have, like, conversations on social media and with our friends and in person, because the more you can talk about it, the more the stigma, like, eases. But I really think just the way that America in particular, but, like, the Western world does motherhood, it sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> our postpartum, like, practices, like, don't even exist. Like, I remember after, like, number three, I was, like, I am going to figure out how to be the best postpartuming mom ever because I'm never going through this again. So mm-hmm. I did all this research and was looking at, like, what do other cultures do to recover? And, I mean, so much of it is rooted in just what it means to be American, which is, like, you're independent, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't mm-hmm. have – maybe you don't have any social support network to speak of because you live 2,000 miles away from your family and mm-hmm. your neighbors go straight into their garage at night. Like, it's just, like – that's not a natural way to live, and it really is evident so clearly in the postpartum time because instead of a community, like, rallying around a new mom and, like, protecting mm-hmm. her from what's normal, which is, like, this crash of hormones and this huge demand of your physical energy, you're totally on your own. And some women are, like, not only on their own, but their husband goes back to work in four days, and then they're mm-hmm. maybe going back to work in six weeks. And no wonder everyone feels sick. Like, that's yeah. crazy. That is so, crazy. I mean, we do a lot now with my husband's, like, we are really strategic about how he uses his vacation time. We've Mm -hmm. had, we've had babysitting up, like, very strategically in the months leading up to and then after delivery. Mm -hmm. We try to take care of, like, meals. And anytime Mm -hmm. somebody asks me if if I need help, I'm like, yes, I do. Please come take my toddler to the park or, yes, come over and sit with my kids so I can take a nap. Like, you just have to say yes to those things because... It's yeah. really for your health. It's not just like, you know, oh, it would be nice to have some company. Like, I see it as, like, another way that you're recovering after childbirth. Lastly, I asked Jenny, how would she like to encourage moms? How would she give them hope? I just, I guess I would encourage a new mom, you know, if it's her first baby or if it's her seventh, you know, just honor how you're feeling. Um, because... You're not crazy, and you've been through something, like, life-altering. And it's not unusual if that comes with big feelings and big challenges. Um, And also, like, give yourself some grace. If you need to not breastfeed because you need your hormones to get back in line and you need more sleep than, you know, getting up every 90 minutes at night, then don't breastfeed. Like, it's better for you to be a healthy mom and to be happy and able to care for your kid than it is for your baby to have breast milk. Like, if you need to put baby in 
a nanny share for two days a week so you can sleep, like, do it. If you guys need to take money out of savings to pay for, you know, some therapy if you're having trouble processing, you know, how your birth went or just the adjustment to becoming a mom. I mean, I just can't emphasize enough, like, it's like a major beautiful but life-altering transition to become a mother. And I think the more we can honor that and recognize that and be honest with ourselves about it, the more we can support women and maybe even prevent some, you know, forms of mental illness that accompany motherhood from taking root. Um, So, yeah, just so much grace and so much let your standards go. Use paper plates, put Netflix on. Give your baby to the husband and take a shower at night. Just do what you need to do and know that it's going to be crazy, but that baby's going to be in kindergarten and you're going to survive. And it's just what do you have to do to get to that point, you know, and ask those questions and then, you know, do what you need to do to get to those conclusions. Um, And don't be in a race with yourself or with society's expectations to, like, get your body back or bounce back or return to your normal because there's no normal. This is your new normal is figuring out how to be mom to this person and figuring out who you still are as a woman in this new relationship. So um, just, like, letting go of those expectations is just really huge, I think. I loved my conversation with Jenny. I would absolutely suggest you check out her column or her Facebook page, Mama Needs Coffee. To me, she's a pioneer making waves in that space of motherhood and how to mother well as a woman in this time in history. In a lot of ways, I feel the same way about Angie. I didn't have to call her or email her because actually Angie Newman is a daily mass communicant at my parish. And I often glimpse her coming into or out of what's called the Perpetual Adoration Chapel. I was so excited to talk to her because she not only holds a master's in marriage and family therapy, but she's a friend and someone who I know approaches mental health with profound thoughtfulness and thorough examination. We sat down, ironically right outside the Adoration Chapel in the parish library. And I started by just asking her about definitions of postpartum depression and anxiety. She did a fantastic job and highly utilized the current DSM, which actually refers to it as peripartum depression, since it can present in the time around birth, not only after. But mostly what she went through here were the symptoms. And if you've been listening to this podcast... I think you have been getting a really good snapshot of what those symptoms can look like for a variety of people. So I'm not going to include that portion of the interview. I did ask her, though, what are some of the causes of postpartum depression? I mean, hormonally, I think would be the greatest suspect that we have. You know, certainly, I think unresolved traumas that the research, again, is showing that more and more in the mental health field, um we're blaming trauma for a lot of things. Certainly there can be that organic piece, so you maybe are born genetically with a predisposition to certain um, illnesses, including mental illnesses. So there's always that feature, and then there's always the, like the nature versus nurture debate. You know, and the answer's generally in, and it's both. You know, so someone might be, say, genetically predisposed to, 
to schizophrenia. That's one of the most hereditary of the mental illnesses, mm-hmm. you know, and then they may do a lot of, of their own work and healing and everything. And so then they, it may not ever develop because mm-hmm. they've really gone through and they've done a lot of work. Whereas mm-hmm. someone who say theoretically had less of a genetic predisposition for that specific illness could develop it if they had a particularly traumatic you know, early childhood or life circumstances, and they they didn't really they weren't able to work through it, or um, for various reasons. So, with peripartum, it is uh, you know the 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 manual is silent on what are the causes, but I think that you know because of the time frame, a lot of it has to do with just the hormonal component. I had been craving this kind of information. I had surmised what were likely the causes of my own postpartum or peripartum depression, but it was really helpful to see how Angie outlined likely culprits like hormones and trauma. Next, I asked Angie the question I was really most looking forward to asking her. It's kind of a mouthful and kind of esoteric, but here it is. How would you determine what needs to be counseled or medicated and where you actually need to grow in virtue or how do those two dynamics relate? I gave her the example of, if I'm just experiencing irritability as a mom, where is my role in that? Where does counseling and medication for an illness come in? And where does my having to grow in virtue apply? This, you may have to highly edit what I'm about to say. Because <laughs> this is one of my, um, just personally, one of my hot buttons. Yeah. Um, because I do have, I work at a clinic that, you know, we do incorporate a lot of spirituality into our treatment for clients who desire that. Mm-hmm. And that could be a whole array of different spiritualities or religions or belief systems. Um, but one of them, particularly in the Christian population, there seems to be, I think, a very unfortunate belief. I'm not saying that all Christians believe this, because certainly they do not. Um, I, for one, am one of those. But there does seem to be a tendency for people, especially, you know, so for instance, I've had clients with anxiety come in before, and then they say, you know, I, I, I don't want to be here. Like, I, I'll, there's one teenager I was treating, for instance, and she said, my parents are forcing me to be here, but what I don't need is one more adult telling me that I just need to trust God more. Mm-hmm. And that's the cause of my anxiety. So it's a sin that I'm anxious. You know, so I think we, we do well to consider the difference between what is, again, clinically significant when there's an organic component happening within the brain and then what is because certainly there is just meanness that we can choose you know so I think as a theologian (laughs) comes into the will right the the volition and so what is choice you know and so some of this stuff when there's a, a hormonal or a chemical imbalance that's happening Um, the last thing, the last thing that I would want to do would be to blame a mom and saying, well, if you were just holier, then you wouldn't be struggling with this Mm -hmm. because talk about like compounding the problem. You know, I do have a client, uh, currently who we're working through this particular, this very specific thing with, um, where she, she just tells me, you know, I, I just need to try harder. You know, if I just, if I weren't so lazy, 
I mean, if you show me a lazy mom, uh, like I, I'd give you money. You know, I just I don't know that they're really. Um, I mean, certainly there are some out there, but generally speaking, that is just so not the case. And so, how do you determine what needs to be counseled or medicated? What research has showed is that both when they're both used in tandem, we have the best results. And so personally, I used to be really against medication because I thought, you know, like I tended to fall in the nature-nurture debate heavier on the, the nurture, like it's all about our experiences. But research just shows that that's really not true. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes when I have clients in my office and they ask me this question, like, should I go to the doctor? Should I seek some, you know, psych meds or whatever? Then I say it never hurts just to go and to get assessed, to get evaluated. So they may say, you know what, you're just really not a good candidate for meds. Mm-hmm. And then, whew, you know, like wipe the sweat off your brow and you, you realize you did you just got it checked out and now you don't have to worry or wonder like should I be on meds should I not and then juxtaposed to that they could recommend medication they could prescribe you medication and then it's still up to you whether or not you actually want to take it Mm -hmm. you know um and so it's really I think up to the individuals and I think it also depends on the gravity of the symptoms Mm -hmm. so the more intense the symptoms generally speaking the more likely you would be to get a prescription Mm -hmm. um where so if you if you're able to do I think you know I think also for people who are really uh medication medication um avoidant what I say is we can always start with therapy and I can teach you some, you know, coping mechanisms and things like that, self-regulation techniques. Um, and then we can see what difference that makes. And so for some people, that's enough. They don't need medication. And for other people, we really do the work and it still is really stubborn and it's not budging, in which case, you know, we really say it's, I think it's very, it would be very helpful if you just at least got assessed and see if you need that medication. Um, So when do you actually need to grow in virtue? I think one really easy um, like ruler for that measure would be, are you consciously choosing to be mean in the moment? You know, so if you're like, you know what? I'm really angry with you right now. And it's a very like overt conscious process where it's like, so I'm just gonna like, I'm just going to lose it on you. I'm going to choose to be mean, or I'm going to choose to be manipulative, or I'm going to choose to do something that would go against your value system. You know, I think that's when we know that we need to grow in virtue. But again, I'm very, um, very, uh, a huge proponent of saying that we, we don't want to add guilt, like add injury to insult or insult to injury, you know, um, with that. So... Yeah. Um, do, is there anything else you want to say about that? Um, I think, yeah, there is something else to say about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm on my soapbox. You can't stop me now. Um, honestly, compassion and self-compassion is huge. You know, I think the closest 
you know, shame, we've done a lot of shame research and shame saying you're bad because you experienced this or the mental health stigmas or, you know, like if I were holier, then I wouldn't be experiencing this or if I were a better person or if there wasn't something wrong with me, you know, like that I can control. Like just so self-blaming or letting other people kind of blame or shame you, I think the studies are in and that is not helpful. You know, and so what's most conducive to growth and to healing is a very compassionate environment. And that probably first and foremost starts with yourself. And so, you know, like if you are someone of like the Christian perspective, then I am beautifully and wonderfully made, the Psalms say, you know, and that is real. And God does not make crap. You know, and um, and if you're not Christian, you know, what are your beliefs about who you are as a person? You know, and so you are not your diagnoses. You are not your illness. You are a creature um, made for greatness. And so I think the more that we can take a positive approach to it and to even differentiate between what is me and what is my illness. And so that I think is very, very, very helpful. And then just maintaining kind of that sacred ground that I am someone worthy, I'm someone good, I am someone um, that has immeasurable gifts to give my kids, my, you know, my partner, my, the world. And so practically mothers struggling with depression, um, I think the first virtue to practice would be hope that I'm going to get better, hope that this is, this is not going to last forever, this too shall pass. And um, yeah, so that's it. That's my soapbox. Wow, thank you for that. <laughs> I think one of the most helpful distinctions Angie made here was when you are free to choose, that's you acting. And when you're not free, that's not you. It's your illness. To the extent you're free to choose right or wrong, you need to choose the good and change your ways when you realize you're not choosing the good. But where you aren't free, you need to exercise that self-compassion. I asked Angie sort of a related question that I'd wanted to ask also. How do you determine what needs to be counseled or medicated and where you actually need to exercise forgiveness of yourself? Um, Yeah, so again, I would just reword it because forgiveness indicates that someone did something wrong. And while, again, you can have postpartum and still be choosing to do things that, you know, are against your moral code... Um, that would be when you need to exercise forgiveness. But the fact that you're experiencing symptoms, that's, I mean, again, I think the word I would choose would be self-compassion rather than forgiveness because it's it's not something that, I mean, no one have I ever encountered would want this. You know, they're not choosing their their diagnosis. Another question I had for Angie was, to what extent does parenting style affect mental health? If it does, or yeah. <laughs> That's a good question, too. <laughs> um, well, there are many different types of parenting styles. And, um, you know, I think one thing that comes to mind is boundaries. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to, the follow-through is huge. Mm-hmm. So we condition our kids to, to a large extent, we condition our kids to to behave the way that they do mm-hmm. you know so if they're they're whiny and they're you know screaming some of that is inevitable mm-hmm. and then some of it is what we can do to train them like we can train it you know and so 
for instance, a kid who is always like screaming or whining or complaining, and by that I mean excessively, not yeah. just kind of the normal stuff. Um, but we're we're conditioning them to do something. Or I, I used to do in-home therapy, and so I'd work with. Uh, with moms who they would always say, you know, like I, they would just scream at their kids in front of me and they'd say, I've tried everything else, but nothing else works. Um, and yet what we know is as we are teaching boundaries and we're practicing them, uh, we want to get it so that you, you never have to raise your voice. You know, so it's like, okay, sweetie, you just give them consequences. You know, you can either choose to pick up your toys right now and then you get dessert or you can choose to play with them for two more minutes and then you don't get dessert, you know? And so just being able to maintain that really calm for your own sanity's sake as moms. So I think that impacts mom's mental health in that you don't want to let your kids drive you crazy, you know, right? And mm-hmm. so you want to be um, conditioning them just to know. And kids really, they thrive off routine and they thrive off just having information. So you're also giving them a healthy amount of power and control, which is really um, crucial to their self-esteem and to the development of a healthy ego is, um, so do you want to do this or do you want to do this? And it's your choice. And you can really stack the favors in you your stack the odds in your favor you know so either you can pick up your toys in the next two minutes or you go to bed three hours early (laughs) you know I mean I think it's it's best to generally um try and make it a pretty uh you know like proportionate consequence to to the action but you can definitely stock it as as a mom in your favor i think that goes a long way just exercising those boundaries and the thing about boundaries is when you first are instilling them the kids will kick and scream and just yell like terribly Mm -hmm. but as you as you show to them that you're consistent and that you you mean it you mean what you're saying then they actually find it extremely helpful and it makes them feel safe because now they know that there's this controlled world that this will happen if I do this or this you know so it actually it's something that kids need they crave and they thrive off of so it's not only good for you but it's also good for them Thank you. That was very helpful for me. Yeah. I immediately put some of that knowledge to use, and it's been incredibly useful. So thank you, Angie. Finally, I asked Angie if she had any closing words. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I think, again, the biggest thing is seek seek help. I mean, I just, I see so many clients who, um, whether it's peripartum or, you know, post-max stress disorder, different things, they just live with it for years, you know, or months of intense, intense suffering. And there is so much that you can do to help to decrease and then, you know, ultimately eliminate the symptoms that really the best thing that you can do, I think, is just to seek help. I know we've hit on this before, but I think Jenny and Angie are exactly right. Seek help. Don't wait forever thinking this is just a phase or this is just how motherhood is. And don't just seek help once. Keep going back to where you find help. Go to prayer, to counsel, to medicine, community. I'd started to find more answers talking to my first expert but for me and this podcast 
I needed to seek help from a few more. And that's to come. On Mental.